Welcome back to Series 2 of The Detective and this, Episode 4, What If It's Not Murder? I'm investigative reporter Mark Williams-Thomas and have spent all my working life focused on trying to help victims get justice. This involves investigating both current and historic crimes as well as looking at potential miscarriages of justice. In this series, I am examining the case of 17-year-old Sana Ali and the conviction of Mindy Sangira for her murder. During the course of the last three podcasts, we have heard Mindy's account and also from her friends and family. We have also heard from the senior investigating police officer, Jane Antrobus, and heard evidence from the pathologist and prosecution experts. At this stage, I would expect you to hold one of three positions. That the evidence stacks up, as per the prosecution case, and Mindy was correctly convicted. Or, that you have some concerns about the evidence, but not enough to feel that Mindy is a miscarriage of justice. Or, that you have serious concerns about the evidence that convicted Mindy, and like her family and friends, believe that Mindy's conviction is unsafe. Let's take a minute to reflect on the key aspects of the police case. They say that Mindy travelled to see Sana, all pre-planned, with the intention of killing her and making it look like suicide. And having done so, climbed out of the kitchen window, which is why the kitchen door was locked. However, Mindy's account is that she travelled to the home of her lover's parents to tell Sana all about her husband's affair with her and to tell her that it was over and that when she left Sana, she was very much alive and let her out of the kitchen door, hence why it was locked. Either way, Mindy did travel to see Sana and the outcome of that meeting is that Sana had 43 knife wounds and died of her injuries. I want to examine in more forensic detail Mindy's account and to help me do this is criminal lawyer David Wells. It is important to note that Mindy's accounts have remained consistent throughout, not changing at all. Furthermore, her account is supported by her friend Sheetal and her mum. And yes, they are not independent, but the evidence they give comes from before the murder investigation was launched. Modern policing has been greatly assisted by advances in technology, so much so that because Mindy had her mobile phone with her at all times, the police were able to use cell site analysis to show that she was where she was when she says she was. So let's have a careful look at Mindy's timeline. Mindy left her home in Solihull at 9am. She was then caught on CCTV at the Shell petrol station in Solihull at 9.12am. This was a significant capturing because it also showed what she was wearing. En route to Manchester to see Sana, she exchanged a number of texts with Sam. At 11.52am, she stopped at Nutsford Services on the M6, which was the correct route to take to get to Sarah and Sana's house. At the services, she called Sheetal and was on the phone for eight minutes. She then continued her journey on to Bury to see Sana. When she arrived, she parked up in a superstore car park and called Sarah at 12.52. They spoke for just over 21 minutes. 
Sayre then called Mindy at 1.23 for just over five minutes. During both the calls to Sayre, Mindy did not say that she was going to see his wife Sana. Sayre did tell Mindy he was going to the mosque. Mindy then drove the final short distance to the address and parked, as she had done many times before, a short distance away. That was about a 90-second walk. Mindy explained that this was where she would normally park, explaining she was having an affair and so would not park right next to the house. At 1.29 she called her friend Sheetal and spoke to her for nearly two minutes. She then sent a text to Sarah and then walked the short distance to the house where she was let in by Sana. The police say that Mindy parked her car a short distance away from the house because she planned to get in and out without being seen because she never intended anyone to know that she was visiting Sana, hence why she never told Sayer that she was heading up to speak to his wife. But let's examine that theory and see if it stands up to scrutiny, and if it's supported by the evidence the police collected. Firstly, the night before the visit, Mindy told some friends she was going to see Sana and tell her about the affair. Mindy parked her car about a minute and a half's walk from the house out of habit, Mindy says she always parked there so that her car would not be seen, given that she was having an affair. Mindy had a missed call from Sayer whilst in the house. Her phone was on silent. So immediately after leaving the house, Mindy called Sayer, but he did not pick up. Once back in her car, she called Sheetal and told her how Sana had reacted. Sheetal said Mindy was calm. Then when Mindy arrived back home in Birmingham, She told her mum as soon as she got in the house. So I do struggle to see how it is possible for the police to say that Mindy never expected to be identified as having gone to see Sana that afternoon, given that she told a number of people before and after her visit. Let's continue with Mindy's account in regard to how she left the house. Mindy says that she left by the back door about 2.15 and that she was let out by Sana. She must have left by 2.21 because she called her friend Sheetal from the car, a call that lasted just over 17 minutes. The manner in which Mindy left the house, quite correctly, comes under very close scrutiny. It is not disputed that Mindy entered the house by the back door, which leads into the kitchen, having been let in by Sana. What is disputed is how Mindy left. The police say that the house was secure, with both the back and front doors locked, when Sana was upstairs with her injuries. Sana did not have a key to the front door, which Sayer had locked when he left. Mindy says that when she left, it was via the way that she had come in, so by the back door from the kitchen, which Sana opened for her to leave. Obviously, if Mindy had attacked Sana, causing 43 injuries and killing her, there is no way that she could have closed the back door after Mindy. And given it was locked then Mindy has to have left via another route. And this is where the issue exists, because two footprints, which are Mindy's, are found on the work surface facing towards the window and a third towards the sink. This is how the police say Mindy left the house. She climbed up onto the kitchen work surface and then out of the window. Mindy accounts for this by saying that when she entered the house, as a custom, she took off her shoes, leaving her with bare feet. And then she says she tried to shut the kitchen window for Sana 
by climbing up onto the work surface with bare feet. But when she was unable to shut it, she put her shoes back on, went out the back door and tried to shut it from outside, managing to push it too. She then came back into the house and took her shoes off again. So what is the evidence that showed Mindy must have gone out of the kitchen window? Two of Mindy's footprints were found on the work surface in the kitchen. Towards the window facing outside, the judge did say at trial that no evidence existed to say that the footprint demonstrated that Mindy had exited the house through the window. The footprints on the work surface were considered by prosecuting QC Mr Wright as being central to proving that Mindy murdered Sana. But when considered carefully with all the other evidence, are they really that damning? Could the one different direction footprint towards the sink support Mindy's account of climbing up onto the work surface with bare feet and then back down again? Also, Mindy was so careful to wear a full forensic suit as the police say she did when she carried out the murder, yet carelessly left her footprints on the kitchen work surface. So staying with the police theory, Mindy told Sheetal, her mum and the police about shutting the window before the police found the work surface prints and came up with a theory she left via the kitchen window. So Mindy must have planned for the fact that the police would find her prints. Which begs the question, given the police say she was so careful to wear a full forensic suit for the murder, why did she not wear forensic shoes when climbing out of the window? That way, the police would have had to have believed her when she said she left via the back door, therefore meaning Sana was still alive. The prosecution instructed expert Mr H Thompson two months after the death to examine the window at a police station, it having first been removed from the house. Mr Thompson on examination stated that the height of the right-hand window, which the police say Mindy climbed through, was 640mm, which is 25 inches or 2 foot, and that when fully opened, which he states three times in his report, was 300mm, which is 11 inches or just less than a foot, a really small gap. He also stated that building regulations require a minimum of 450mm, yet the window opening was only 300mm. So the police and prosecution case was that Mindy climbed through a gap of one foot, managing to leave no forensic trace as she went through the window. To get through the very narrow opening, she would have to have twisted her body, and as she did so, she managed to either balance in mid-air, or more likely, stand on the window ledge in her bare feet, for which no footprint was found. Climbing through, Mindy jumped in bare feet onto the concrete below, then pushed the window to, put on her shoes, picked up her handbag and the fully-blooded forensic suit and walked off before calmly calling Saia, who did not answer, and then her friend Sheetal. At trial, the defence team totally failed to identify the issues with the police theory about Mindy exiting via the window, nor did they seek any expert evidence themselves to address these issues, which were absolutely central and remain central to the prosecution's case. Please go to our website, www.the-detective.co.uk, to see some pictures of the window, the blinds, and a video explaining this evidence. From all the evidence, it certainly seems the case that Sana was confined to the house, 
locked in without a front door key. And one question you may ask is why Sana would have wanted to shut the window. We will never know that, but Mindy does say that the house had been subject to a number of burglaries recently. Another interesting aspect was that the kitchen window had full-length blinds across it, which were closed. You can see exactly what the window and blinds looked like by going to the detective website. Given that every contact leaves a trace, it would be very hard to get out of the window without touching the frame or the blind with either your hand or clothing. Yet forensics found no prints or fibres that matched Mindy's clothing. Defence expert, Home Office pathologist Dr Ackland said it was not impossible to get out of the window, but it would have been awkward given that the blinds were drawn. She would have had to have lifted the rail of the blinds to achieve her exit and jumped down without shoes on. Dr Ackland is wrong in his statement. The blinds are fixed by clips to the top on a track and therefore have no rail to lift. Dr Ackland did not attend the scene. His evidence is from reading the papers. Furthermore, I am unsure why a pathologist is giving expert evidence of a person being able to climb out of a window. All of which seems bizarre and unnecessary when she could have exited out the back door. The next theory that the police relied on was that Mindy wanted Sana's death to look like suicide and with the back door locked, this would work. This theory by the police is of course linked with their belief that Mindy did not want anyone to know that she was visiting Sana, something we have already carefully considered. So in summary, the police's case was built on the following, that Mindy planned to murder Sana and did not want anyone to know that she was visiting her. She parked a car around the corner so that nobody would see her visiting, took with her a full forensic suit with boots and mask and at least two pairs of gloves, brutally stabbed Sana causing 43 separate knife injuries, very carefully managed to take her forensic suit off all the time, managing not to transfer a single droplet of blood either out of the bedroom or onto any items of clothing that she was wearing or any property that she handled, and then staged the murder to look like suicide before climbing out of the kitchen window without leaving a trace on the blinds. What do you think? Does that sound reasonable on the evidence that you've heard? Or perhaps a little too far-fetched and just an unevidenced hypothesis dreamt up by the police to fit their narrative? This was ultimately the prosecution's case, which resulted in Mindy being convicted. What do we know about Sana's contact with any friends in the days and weeks leading up to her death? Sana's best friend was someone called Farah Kawaja. On the Thursday night, so the night before, Sana texted her around 11pm and it read as follows. Love is pain. Last line was, love is like hanging yourself. Farah said she thought Sana was depressed. There is also a very telling conversation that Farah has with Sana over the two days before her death. In Farah's statement, she said that she had had long phone conversations with Sana on Wednesday the 9th and Thursday the 10th of May. During those conversations, Sana told her that she was sad. She referred to Sarah as this man and complained that some nights he used to come home at four or five in the morning. Farah says that Sana talked about Sarah 
having lots of girlfriends, which made her angry. She says Sana said that she was upset and spoke on one occasion when Sarah said he would like to spend the night with a porno-style actress who he'd seen on television. Under cross-examination, Farah later said that the statement was inaccurate in a number of respects. Mindy told police during her 11 interviews, which amounted to 393 pages, that Sana had said to her, I've cut myself because of how things have been between us. When Sana was found, there was a holdall in the bedroom packed with clothes. This can also be seen in the crime scene photographs. So, was Sana intending to leave? Now let's consider further the mobile phone evidence and what we know about Mindy's, Sayer's and Sana's mobile messages and calls on that day. En route from her home in Birmingham to see Sana in Berry, Mindy sent 32 text messages to Sayer and Sayer sent 13 back to her. Mindy called Sayer three times and Sayer called Mindy twice. Mindy called her friend Sheetal twice, once en route and then immediately after leaving the house. We know that shortly after 1.33, Mindy goes to the house, is let in and stays for around 40 to 50 minutes. She leaves around 2.20. And between 1.56 and 1 minute past 4, 15 missed calls were made to Sana's phone, none of which were answered. Two calls were made by Sana's mum, Mariam, and are shown up as having gone to the answer phone, which would have resulted in two text messages being sent to Sana's phone. These were received at 15.53 and 24 seconds, and 15.53 and 54 seconds, lasting 24 and 21 seconds respectively. The two calls at 15.53 are very significant, because at this stage it is accepted by all that Mindy had left the house. It is these two calls that Mindy's defence, and in particular her parents, feel are really significant. The two calls that go through to Sana's answer phone are six seconds apart. The defence position is that in order for a phone call to be registered on a user's bill, it must either be answered or pass the ringing stage and reach the beginning of the destination voicemail greeting. Therefore, they state that Sana's mum must have finished the first call, then redialed Sana and either spoken to somebody or let the phone ring in order for it to reach the voicemail. Sana's defence, therefore, made the claim that the second call is likely to have been answered, the call lasted 12 seconds, and yet no voicemail was found on Sana's phone. The prosecution say that the call was not answered, nor was a voicemail left. In 2009, Mindy's case was successfully heard at the Court of Appeal. The focus remained the same. It was not Mindy, but in fact Sayer who had killed his wife. One of the grounds of appeal related to the text message that Sayer sent to Sana at 14.19 and 22 seconds. This is after Sayer had spoken to Sana's mum, who was very concerned about her daughter. This related to the text message sent by Sayer to Sana on Friday which was received on her mobile at 14.19 and 22 seconds. By the time the police took possession of the mobile at around 5.30 that day, the text had been opened. The fact that the text had been opened 
was not disclosed to the jury at the trial. The appeal argument was that the jury should have been made aware that the text message had been opened because it might have influenced their verdict. Specifically, that if the jury decided that Sana had opened or might have opened the text, then Mindy could not have been the killer. It was accepted that if Sana did open the text, then Mindy could not have been the killer because she was already in a car when she made the call to Sheetal. The argument that the prosecution, in conjunction with the police, came up with to explain why the text message was opened was either Mindy had opened it by mistake, there was no forensics of Mindy's on Sana's phone, or in the confusion that arose in the house, one of the family members opened the text message. It was accepted by the police that the integrity of the phone was hopelessly compromised, given that it was touched by various people at the scene. The Court of Appeal ruled on this by saying that if this material had been deployed before the jury, it could not have assisted them because whoever opened the text, it could not have been Sana. So what do we know about the clothing that Mindy wore on the day and what do forensics tell us about them? The expert, Dr Davidson's belief is that it is possible that at some stage after Sana's death, Mindy turned her from being on her front to being on her back and it was as a result of this contact that Mindy got blood on her hands. And this is how Sana's blood was transferred via Mindy's hands when she touched the window and door handle. We have heard the senior investigating police officer is convinced that Mindy wore a full forensic suit and this is I am sure because it is the only way the police can reconcile why Mindy's clothes are not covered in blood. I find this hypothesis, which is unsupported by either the police finding the purchase or disposal of any such forensic suit, as highly improbable. But let's consider the transfer of blood anyway. So, after the attack, Mindy returned to her car, which was thoroughly forensically examined, and yet no blood was found on the steering wheel, gear stick, door handle. In fact, no trace of blood was found anywhere in the car or on her mobile phone. And so what of Mindy's clothing? Given the amount of blood spatter in the bedroom, and that this, according to the police, was a sustained and ferocious attack in which Mindy inflicted multiple wounds by a very sharp knife which caused considerable blood loss to Sana, surely even the smallest of particles would have been found on Mindy's clothing or outside of the bedroom. During the investigation, the police and prosecution were adamant that the clothes they had seized from Mindy's chair when they arrested her were not the same as seen on the CCTV, therefore not the same as those she had worn on the day Sana died. However, at trial, the police and prosecution did accept that the clothes that were seized were in fact the same as those she had worn before visiting Sana and after visiting Sana. Crucially, none of Mindy's clothes that she had worn that day had any of Sana's blood on them. Right at the beginning of this series, I pose three questions. The last one being, could Sana have caused these injuries to herself, making this not a case of murder, but one of suicide? Remember, Dr Lum and the police both described the hand and arm injuries as being defence wounds. 
But what if they were not defence wounds, but hesitation wounds? These are a series of cuts or wounds which can be deep or superficial, made by someone considering a suicide attempt or pre-suicide. These wounds often run in parallel to each other or collinearly along the same line. In studies, hesitation wounds have been found to be present in up to 75% of suicide cases. One major area that I will examine now and again in episode 5 is the precise location and direction of each wound. In the next episode, I will show you how two experiments have not only uncovered major inaccuracies in the police pathologist's Dr Lum's evidence, but also what I would say are failings by all the pathologists that gave evidence. So where were the wounds on Sarna's body? Sarna had five on her left side of her neck, none on her right side. Three on the tips of her right fingers, none on the back of her right hand. Twelve on the inside of her right hand and two on the lower inside of the forearm, none on the outside of her forearm. Eight on the inside of her left hand and five on the inside and outside of her left forearm and one on the back of her left hand. None on her back, shoulder, face, upper arms or the back of her dominant right hand or arm. All these wounds are in a place that you could do yourself and especially if you were right-handed. I've spent hours studying the photographs and pathology reports as well as reading the limited studies around suicides and homicide wounds and something has jumped out at me. Something that I think is really significant and has been missed. The studies talk about how wounds when connected to a homicide tend to come from various angles as the assailant and victim move around. Remember, this was described as a frenzied attack in which Mindy moved around the room and bed. So what of the direction of the wounds to Mindy? Disappointingly, Dr Lum does not give a direction for most of the wounds. When looking back, he clearly should have. But significantly, where he does give a direction, he describes them as orientated in the 2 to 8 o'clock position. So how is it possible to have wounds during a frenzied attack in which both parties are moving to have come from the same direction? In addition, the wounds to Sana were overwhelmingly horizontal. Would this be the case if Mindy had been stood in front of her? Also, a vital aspect which I want you to consider are the injuries to Sana's hands. They are on the inside of her fingers, surely, if the offender is in front of you and you are grabbing the knife as the pathologist and police believe, then the cuts would be on the palm of the hand because otherwise Mindy would have been holding the knife the wrong way round, blade side up, not down. Try it, pick up a knife and almost certainly you will have the blade side down, not up. But consider now, how would you hold the knife if you were to cut yourself? You would have the blunt end in the palm of your hand and either pull your fingers across the blade or grab the knife, causing the cuts to the inside of the fingers. I firmly believe now that these wounds to the hands, arms and neck have been misinterpreted as defence wounds when they are in fact self-inflicted wounds. 
One key aspect that is missing from this case is proper analysis by any of the pathologists of each wound, from both the prosecution and defence experts. My view is that each injury should have been considered in isolation, asking two key questions. Are these the injuries you would expect to see with an assailant stood in front of you with a one-sided blade? And could these injuries have been self-inflicted? A vital mistake that I believe both the police and pathologists have made to date is to fail to separate what is possible from what they believe is likely. I totally understand the view taken that it is unlikely that Sana caused such injuries to her hands or indeed stabbed herself in her abdomen and chest. But I say, and so does all the evidence, that it is possible. And that is a massive distinction which has not been properly considered by any of the experts to date. It is the difference between a suicide and a murder, simply because a person believes of what is more likely rather than what is possible. We will explore this in more detail soon. I wanted to find out if there were any cases of suicide that were investigated as murder and vice versa. I found one such case. It's from 1987 and I'm so shocked by it that I wanted to share it with you. Dr Benjamin Davis, the Home Office pathologist who did the post-mortem, disagreed. He said he'd seen three similar cases recently and was convinced she had tried to strangle herself before tying herself up and tumbling into the water to commit suicide. Well, from the beginning I thought this was a suicide. Uh, The young ladies... tying up of the wrists and ankles was so uh, amateurish that I can't imagine any assailant attempting to tie her up in that particular way. This is a case of 26-year-old Sharni Warren. Her body was found bound and gagged in a lake near Maidenhead, England. Cause of death? Drowning. Her wrists had been tied behind her back with a single car jump lead and her legs bound by her own car tow rope. The other jump lead was found in the water, having been fastened around her neck. The case, originally treated as suicide by the pathologist and by a senior police officer. The police did finally conclude it was murder. Sadly, it still remains unsolved. So if it happened that way, surely it could happen the other way round. A case treated as murder, but there was in fact suicide. I spoke to a friend in Greater Manchester Police and they advised me of a few other cases in the force much more recently where a person was arrested for murder but it was in fact ruled to be suicide. One such case. A 29-year-old man who died from knife wounds in Manchester stabbed himself to death, police have said, after initially treating it as a murder. Officers were called to Manchester Royal Infirmary at 0930 GMT on 9th of February after reports a man had died from multiple stab injuries. A 31-year-old man was arrested on suspicion of murder, but after the post-mortem examination, police changed their mind, moving the case from murder to suicide. Further intensive research has identified an incredible case in Italy which is so similar, the circumstances being that a 48-year-old male physiotherapist was found in his house, lying in a pool of blood with multiple knife wounds, and with the knife beside him. The man had stab wounds to his chest and abdomen and what the pathologist described as superficial cuts to his neck and left wrist. In total, 
He had 35 wounds to his body, the chest wound being a depth of 15 centimetres. He was fully clothed, but had no knife cuts to his clothing. He had been having an affair, and on the day of his death, his lover had visited him, and they had argued. The cause of death was blood loss from the injuries. The similarities with the Italian case and Sarna's are striking, even to the fact that both had no knife cuts to their clothing and the murder weapon, the knife, was found beside them. But when one looks further into the physical and psychological background to both cases, the similarities increase. The Italian man was aged 48 years old, married, but having an affair, something his wife had only just found out about. On the day of the death, the man had been threatened by the woman he was having an affair with, and they had a heated argument. The Italian man did leave a suicide note, but had no history of previous self-harming. Now let us take Sana's situation. Her husband was having multiple affairs, and on the day of her death, she was confronted with this by one of her husband's lovers. Sana, aged seven, was told that she was marrying Saia. At the time of her death, she was only 17 years old, pregnant, and one has to assume would not have been happy to be carrying the baby of her unfaithful husband. Mindy says that Saia had told her about an argument he had with his wife, where she said to him, he did not care about her, did not speak to her, did not treat her properly, and that she was going to start hurting herself again. Sana had a history of previous self-harming, with scars on her arm, and was deeply unhappy according to her friend. On the day of Sana's death, her family was so concerned about her, they called her 17 times, and when they got no reply, after a number of hours, they went round to check on her. It is on this visit to check on Sana that her sisters-in-law find her on the floor in a pool of blood with a knife beside her and a clump of her own hair in her hand. There is no evidence of a struggle or any attempt from Sana to leave the bedroom. And Mindy had no injuries to her body. Police say Mindy wanted it to look like suicide, had meticulously planned the murder, carrying out the attack in a full forensic suit leaving the knife next to Sana. So let's run with this police theory that Mindy meticulously planned the murder and then staged the scene to look like a suicide. The major problem I have with this is the amount of injuries that Sana had. Would Mindy have really thought that she could make 43 injuries look like suicide? the Italian case after hours of research looking through worldwide medical journals and articles and have tracked down the forensic pathologist Professor Devella. He's the chief medical examiner for the city of Turin, a highly experienced forensic pathologist who carries out work also for United Nations International Tribunal. I'm just about to set off on my way to the airport to fly to Turin to go and meet the professor and discuss both his case and this one. Here in Turin and now making my way to the professor's office. He's based on the university campus. I've never been to Turin before. First impressions are what a beautiful city. Whenever I visit anywhere for the first time I always try to do a little bit of research, find out some facts, 
So Turin was the capital of Italy from 1861 to 1865. It's the fourth largest city in the country, nestling in the foothills of the Alps, and held the Winter Olympics in 2006, which massively helped it rejuvenate after years of economic decline. So some brief facts there. Let's see what the professor's got to say. His case is absolutely fascinating. And as I start to tell you about it, and he does, you'll see how similar it is. So Professor, you examined a, or were involved in a case of a 48 year old man who was a therapist. And there was some initial thought that perhaps this might have been homicide. But it turned out, in fact, after your examination, that it was a suicide. Could you just give me the overview of that case? Yes, um, I'm Giancarlo Di Vella. I'm full professor in legal medicine, the University of Turin, and chief of medical examiner in the same city. Uh, we was involved in around in 2007 about uh, a 40 years old physical therapist that was founded uh, in uh, his uh, home and uh, of course uh, uh, the first opinion uh, when we arrived that uh, it was a consequence of a homicide because uh, uh, he had a lot of uh, wounds on his uh, body and uh, he was uh, described uh, as uh, uh, he were alone he was alone when uh, after just a quarrel with his uh, uh, girlfriend. So anyway, uh, he has 35 uh, wounds uh, and uh, many uh, of these on the neck, uh, on the chest and the abdomen and uh, some of uh, uh, left wrist too. And the first opinion was that just on the crime scene that uh, it was an homicide just uh, considering the, uh, the very hot the very large number of uh, uh, wounds that we found. So just like Mindy's case, he had a significant number of wounds, 35 in total, and they were to his chest, abdomen and wrists. He had a domestic argument with a person with whom he was having an affair. He had no cuts to his top and the knife was beside him. So far, identical to Mindy's case. In Professor Vella's case, the police ruled it a homicide immediately before changing their mind and making it a suicide. Mindy's case was the other way round. Many of these wounds are, uh, were typically for excitation marks. You know that the excitation marks are normally superficial or parallel incised wounds that we have on the wrist on the descendant. And um, this is a typical uh, when uh, something uh, somebody w would like to uh, try what kind uh, when the inside is sense. Anyway, uh, after the uh, autopsy, uh, we evaluate uh, many uh, elements that we have on scene about especially uh, the crime scene where we found a note about uh, his uh, purpose to suicide and uh, uh, we performed too um, the, ups, the psychological uh, profile of the victims uh, and we performed after, of course, the, um, the autopsy, uh, what we know uh, as psychological autopsy. 
However, we investigate about the history of uh, the uh, previous uh, uh, attempts of uh, suicide of the victims, but other information about uh, um, rings uh, indicative of suicide intents, note or documents, uh, or relationship, mood, psychosocial stressors, uh, educational history, uh, behavior in proximity of dead, uh, language we use uh, inside uh, the note that we found on uh, on the scene uh, history of medication or drug uh, consumption medical history or mental state uh, before that so many other uh, details as family history employment history psychological or psychopathology history too in this case uh, we conclude that uh, we found a science of the typical depression and uh, we conclude for a suicide because uh, he had typical multiple excitation wounds no defect or laceration on clothing because the victim pushed aside the shirt okay. so the stabbing injuries were localized in the body regions typical for suicide i.e. the chest and the abdomen and uh, the director uh, of the thrust downward in the stabbing we have absence of defense injuries or other type of wound. And anyway, we found the letter in victim's own handwriting. So uh, uh, on, on the psychological point of view, uh, we conclude that the victim self-inflicted uh, injuries has escaped from the situation and self-punishment on a tournament of guilty feeling. How do you describe hesitation wounds what are they uh, the hesitation uh, wounds are typical because uh, they are multiple superficial and uh, incised in, in wound normally on the wrist and uh, they express the, the the temptation of the uh, the victims to try the what what happened when uh, inside himself Maybe uh, the excitation marks, uh, or call it so, tentative injuries, uh, normally um, uh, are present uh, in, uh, in, the, in the wrist uh, or sometimes to the neck right. or sometimes also in the front uh, uh, area of the chest or the abdomen because, of course, these are ones that uh, the victim are able to perform by himself. So not only do both cases share the same psychological profiles, Mindy's case goes one step further in that Sana had previously self-harmed. Significantly in addition, Professor Vella describes exactly the wounds that Sana had on her body as being typical of hesitation wounds. And in terms of areas on the body where people tend to go to for suicide, where is it most prominent? But normally, it's dependent to the background of uh, culture of the, the, the victims because, uh, uh, for example, in the case we describe in the literature, uh, he was uh, in a physical therapy, so he uh, was able to identify uh, where is the, uh, uh, what may be a little uh, wounds because uh, he know uh, where is the heart or the other vital uh, uh, organs uh, of course when uh, uh, victims are not uh, uh, is not expert 
in uh, position of the vital organs, uh, uh, they can try uh, to cut uh, everywhere just to demonstrate uh, the volunteer to commit suicide. And in terms of chest and abdomen, when I first started looking at this, I was doubtful whether or not somebody could inflict such a horrific wound to themselves. But actually, as I did my research and indeed came across your case, I would be wrong to have formed that view because actually there are quite a number of cases out there where people do stab themselves in their chest and abdomen. No, it's possible that uh, uh, victims uh, uh, cut or stab uh, uh, him or herself uh, in the chest, in the abdomen. This is a typical. Uh, you know that when the wound is located in the abdomen area, uh, you may call it as a karakiri. Uh, but that's uh, the one important evidence that we have to evaluate if we can separate the suicide hypothesis to from the homicide hypothesis is also the direction of the stab wounds yeah. because uh, uh, it it may be consistent with the possibility that the victim cut or stab uh, him or herself uh, during the suicide so uh, it's a very important element uh, with of course the other or the crime scene evidence that we have available do you think it's strange that no blood either of Sarno, uh, all the other way around, was found on the offend on the offender. So, in other words, Mindy had absolutely no blood either on her clothes or uh, on anything. Uh, that's a good question because uh, I agree with the, who performed the autopsy about that the case is really a homicide with not suicide. But uh, I'm not really agree that uh, the. Mrs. Uh, Mandy uh, Sanghera uh, may be the authors of the the, 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 the homicide because uh, uh, has uh, I I have been able to uh, um, read in the paper you sent me. Uh, really, we don't have any link, forensic link uh, between uh, the between the homicide and uh, any activity of. Uh, uh, Miss Sanghera, because uh, I think that's really impossible that uh, uh, with uh, with a large number of wounds, uh, the the offender uh, did not uh, take any traces of blood, for example. No. Uh, it's it's really uh, in unusual case that uh, the offender arrived on the site and use a forensic suite uh, as uh, uh, supposed the police about uh, uh, the purpose uh, in killing the victim. And of course that's their explanation, the police and the Crown say. The reason she doesn't have blood on her is because she was addressed in a full forensic suit. So from a pathology point of view and someone that's attended lots of crime scenes in your country, or even in your research, have you ever heard of a case where a, an offender has turned up at the scene, put on a full forensic suit? Absolutely no. I didn't know any previous case about uh, this strategy in the premeditation of homicide. Uh, because, uh, but in, anyway, in this case, uh, I think that the victims 
lost a lot quantity, large quantity of blood. Mm. And I think it's really impossible that uh, on the body of the offender uh, did not remain any evidence of uh, this uh, uh, blood uh, losing. Given the fact that blood wasn't found out of the room, is that surprising? It's very unusual that uh, she was uh, so able uh, to avoid any evidence, uh, any traces uh, along the way she walked the way. And how significant do you think it is that a knife, the knife that was used, was left at the scene? In fact, this is uh, uh, non-consistent with your hypothesis of the, the the homicide, uh, if you use normally uh, forensic suits, you are so uh, uh, warning about the possibility to uh, uh, avoid any evidence and you lost on the site the knife. It's very crazy to imagine the defender so in uh, argued, uh, maybe uh, so able to cover herself uh, to avoid any evidence, mm-hmm. but but at the same time, uh, she lost the knife on crime scene. Uh, it's very not consistent with the hypothesis of uh, uh, a premeditation of uh, a murder in this way, as we uh, we are reading on the reports. Uh, I think that the same case in Italy, probably, uh, without any evidence about traces, uh, about uh, clothing, clothes, uh, no evidence in the car, no evidence uh, in any uh, clothes, uh, no evidence at home of the suspected offender, probably in Italy she was defined no guilty in this kind. In terms of suicide, when somebody starts to cut themselves, at what point... Do they form the view they're going to continue to kill themselves? Are there people that cut themselves, cause a bit of harm and don't die? And then other people who cut themselves cause so much harm that they either intentionally die or they're just very unlucky that they've hit a major organ. But I think that we have to distinguish a couple of cases, for example. Uh, the person that uh, wants to kill himself or just uh, people that uh, would like to uh, exhibit uh, that is able to uh, damage uh, himself. Uh, Sometimes we have uh, victims that uh, produce many cuts on the surface until they cut an uh, arterious uh, vascular system. So the 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 loss of uh, blooding is very large, so they quickly uh, excitate in a, in a cardiac shock. And so, will there be people who escalate from cutting themselves, and it escalates to them ending up killing themselves, although that wasn't their intention at the beginning? But uh, normally, they start uh, where they know probably have a vascular system with the wrist. But sometimes we can have some cuts just. Uh, around the neck, for example, or ankle, uh, and uh, it is normally correlated to the uh, cultural background of this uh, victim because uh, yeah. uh, he decided to start. Uh, sometimes they are alone, but sometimes we are inside a group or in front of uh, the partner, so they want to show that they are able to do it. But sometimes they are um, strongly motivated 
especially because uh, they may have uh, contemporary uh, intoxication by alcohol or some drugs and so uh, they don't have a really capacity to uh, intend what they are doing too. No, so in this case, in relation to Sana, all that you've seen, do you believe that that was a homicide? Yes, but uh, especially for uh, the presence of the defence um, wounds. So Professor Vella believes my case to be a homicide, albeit that he describes hesitation wounds as being in the same places that Sana had her cuts. He had serious concerns about the police view that Mindy wore a full forensic suit, and in his opinion, Mindy is not the killer. I asked David Wells, criminal lawyer, what he makes of the professor's assessment. I believe that Professor Vella has been very helpful indeed, and for a number of reasons. Crucially, he shows us how difficult it can be to interpret knife and incision wounds with any certainty, and when looking at injuries of this type, the issue of causation can be highly influenced by significant external factors specific to the injured person or the deceased. We know, I think now with some certainty, that it is not uncommon for individuals who wish to take their own lives to do so with the use of sharp objects such as knives, and you cannot and should not dismiss the prospect of suicide in a case such as Mindy's because there are a number of incision injuries. And what about Sana's hand injuries? Yes, I agree. Those injuries appear on the face of it to be more consistent with a struggle and perhaps an attempt to fend off an attack with a knife. But I would say this, given that there are documented cases of individuals who have committed suicide by the infliction of repeated incision or stab wounds and indeed to various parts of the body, why would it not be considered equally plausible that someone contemplating suicide or commencing the process would start initially with some preparatory hesitation wounds on the hands and wrists and then proceed further with more self-inflicted injury resulting in eventual death? I don't believe you can dismiss this in a case like Mindy's when you consider all the available evidence that has been uncovered and from the other information helpfully provided by Professor Vella. The theory of suicide in Mindy's case appears to have been too readily dismissed, simply because of the number of injuries Sana was found to have suffered, which, given what we now know, it could be argued, was a flawed approach. The interview with Professor Vella was really helpful and certainly gave a different view and perspective. What is so incredible is just how similar these two cases are. The Italian case, first treated as murder and then suicide, and Sana's, treated as suicide and then ruled a murder. It has now got me thinking. Do we have cases in the UK and around the world which have been deemed suicide but are in fact murder? And also, people in jail falsely convicted of murder when they are in fact suicides. Next week in episode 5, I challenged the police officer in charge of the case over her theory of it being a planned attack. I think that when what happened happened, it was made to look like suicide. To kill her? Yeah. And make it look like suicide or not? She then decided to make it look like suicide because she knew that Sana was um, quite fragile in, in, um, com- from conversations that she had numerous conversations with uh, Sayer Ali.
I continue on my hunt to find and speak to Saeer. I think he's most likely back in Pakistan now. Um, I think he's attempted to keep a low profile since these events happened. Hear from Mindy's family. I believe in our innocence and every single day I wake up and I think, right, you know, we're going to do this. We, we'll get through this and we, we stand together and I just keep supporting the family. Asked the police officer in charge of the case, could she have got it wrong? You're told by pathologists these aren't self-inflicted injuries to the extent it's murder. You investigate it as murder. I think, you know, when you look in terms of miscarriages of justice and appeals, this is because years later someone looks at it in a fresh pair of eyes and goes, well, actually, could it be this? And I, the one thing I always come back to is that it, when, when it looks like it's something, it probably is. If it looks like a duck and it quacks, then it probably is a duck. If it looks like suicide, the knife's laid there beside them, it probably is suicide. Investigate a series of threatening text messages that Saya received from an anonymous female. And carry out two tests, one being Sana cutting herself and the other being attacked. You've just heard episode four of What If It's Not Murder. If you enjoyed this podcast, we ask that you please tell your true crime friends to listen and subscribe to our channel. If you have any thoughts or just want to get in touch, then you can do so via our Twitter page at The Detective FM or go to our website www.thedetective.co.uk. Thank you for listening. This episode was written, produced and recorded by Mark Williams-Thomas, edited by Martin Kays and the music by Dylan E. Pager. The Detective is an original true crime podcast brought to you by Acast.